0: We have made it to the end of our sermon series on the parables of Jesus. We've explored so many layers of meaning to each of these stories. We've seen how they speak to all corners of life. Money, being lost and then found, relationships between enemies, living out one's faith, how God views us, and more. We're closing this series with a parable that's traditionally called the parable of the laborers in the vineyard which puts a little more emphasis on the laborers and the vineyard than perhaps was originally intended, but we'll get there. As I read through the story, I encourage you to note the different characters and uh, see who you most identify with. Today's scripture is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now, when the first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. God of radical provision, we ask that you meet us here in this word. Speak to us what we need to know. Quiet the distractions within and without, and shape us into the people you dreamed of at creation. Amen. Amen. I find this parable to be especially powerful. It often evokes a visceral emotional response and is a bit of a roller coaster. (laughs) If this is your first time hearing this story, you might hear the landowner's words of, I'll pay you whatever is right, and assume that the landowner would kind of prorate the daily fee for each laborer. Those that worked the full day would get the full wage. Those who only worked a few hours would get a percentage. That way, everything would have been equitable, fair, even. And if we're listening to this, as Jesus is telling the story, we're expecting Jesus to lift up a landowner who treated people with fairness as perhaps an example to follow. That's why we're listening to Jesus. That's why his audience was listening to him. But the landowner didn't do that. He had his manager call all the laborers together to receive their pay and instructed those who had worked the least amount of hours to be paid first. This shows us that the landowner wanted all of them to see what would happen. He wanted to be transparent. Instead of a fair wage, instead of prorating pay based on hours worked, the landowner gave the latecomers an amount of money that was the full, usual daily rate. That amount is what the earliest workers had agreed to. The others agreed to work on a vague assurance that they would be paid whatever is right. And so those who had worked all day saw those who came later in the day being paid a full wage and assumed that they would be paid even more than what they had agreed agreed upon in the morning. Their words of disappointed grumbling show how quickly they had gotten excited about the potential extra pay. They complained and said, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. And really, they're not wrong. Those who were hired first did expend more energy. They worked more. They harvested more than those who were hired late in the day. The efforts and results were not equal. So why should the pay be equal? The landowner replied, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? The landowner was also right. He kept his word to them and paid them what they had agreed upon that morning. They had no real complaint that they could lodge against him. He had held up his agreement and then happened to be generous with others. They might have been able to say that the landowner didn't compensate equally, but they couldn't say that the landowner cheated them out of anything. So what does this mean? Why is Jesus telling us this story? What could it signify for them, for Jesus' original hearers, and for us today? Traditionally, readers of the scripture have taken this story to be about salvation. And there's merit to that inter- interpretation. The vineyard was a common metaphor both for the literal nation of Israel, but also God's plans and hopes for the future of Israel. Some interpret the different groups of laborers as representatives of different classes of Jewish people, with the last group of laborers representing Gentiles, non Jewish folks, coming into the fold. If that is the case, there's still a good challenge and lesson there. God doesn't care when we commit ourselves to God, only that we do it. But over the years, that interpretation has led to significant anti Semitism, even if that wasn't the original intent of the interpretation it also keeps this parable in the abstract. And when Jesus usually told parables, they had both literal physical implications and spiritual implications. So this is a parable that is about real money and labor practices that are shaped by justice and not necessarily equity. But it's also a parable about our expectations and our assumptions, how humans relate to God and how that relationship affects all of our human relationships. Day laborers in that time, much like today, were often paid very little for very demanding physical work. They were folks who lived right on the edge of deep poverty. Available work varied from day to day, and managers and landowners were not guaranteed to be people of integrity. When the landowner goes into the marketplace at the very end of the day and still finds workers available for hire, he said, why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. Now, we don't know why no one had hired them. Maybe they were older or disabled. Maybe more likely, it was just that there was a surplus of workers and a scarcity of work. Both the workers hired at the beginning of the day and those hired at the end of the day, went on, as the day went on, were in need of a daily wage that would provide enough for them and for their families. These folks were not living paycheck to paycheck, They were living day to day. They faced real scarcity every day and longed for enough to survive another day. So of course, those hired early in the day would be excited at the prospect of a higher wage. Perhaps those hired late in the day expected a prorated pay. Perhaps they had resigned themselves to going to bed hungry again, but still grateful for something rather than nothing. All of the laborers wanted enough to make it through the day and they wanted whatever work they had done to be rewarded. They wanted the agreement to be fulfilled, the contract upheld, the promise kept. They worked, the landowner paid, according to effort expended, and results shown. New Testament scholar Amy Jill Levine writes about how it was not actually that unusual to do what the landowner did. Throughout the Hebrew scriptures and other historical writings, managers and landowners occasionally paid the same rate to those who had worked an hour as those who had worked an entire day. It was a sign of justice that employers recognized the reality that the daily wage provided for entire families. So if the practice itself wasn't that strange, why did the laborers from early in the day complain? What is the surprise in this parable for us? I wonder if they'd gotten stuck in a mindset that centered around earning. I wonder if, for them, all that mattered was completing the transaction, hard work for enough pay. They had forgotten that doing work in a communal society was not just for their own reward. Living as a faithful follower of God meant that earned pay for one person shouldn't mean no or little pay for another. Scarcity was so real and so painful that they jumped at the idea they might be able to get more than others who faced that same scarcity. Many of us may sympathize with those early morning laborers. After all, scarcity is still a struggle today. It never feels like there is enough time or energy or patience or money or support to live the lives we feel called to live. The myth of having it all keeps us working so hard that we burn out, or we participate in systems that keep some people severely underpaid. We have learned to view fairness and equality as justice instead of operating from a nuanced understanding of what is right and how that varies from person to person based on their needs and their circumstances. If we resonate most with the morning laborers, then part of the challenge of this parable is to rejoice when others have enough, and to not always grasp for more. If we find the actions of the landowner to be soft-hearted and bad for business, perhaps part of the challenge is examining why profit always seems to be prioritized over justice. It's important to grapple with the literal, physical implications of this parable because many who were listening to Jesus at that time were trying to survive the oppressive regime of Rome by employing practices that would harm others. In the face of such traumatic scarcity, many of Jesus' listeners had turned on each other, seeking fairness over justice. Jesus meant this parable to have physical and spiritual implications, he was very concerned with the poor and the vulnerable and used all of his teaching to challenge people to care for one another better. As Jesus' listeners today, we're challenged to pursue justice in our financial interactions and not just fairness or equality. So I want to turn now to what this parable might have to say to us spiritually. Jesus' original audience, whether they were poor or rich, high or low status, were primarily faithful Jewish people who lived their lives according to the law, the law that God had given them in the Torah, the way of living that God had designed to bring about communal flourishing and care. Unlike any religion, some people lived out the spirit and the letter of the law, and others distorted it. Some tried to live it out well, but they felt stuck in their inability to get it right. And those that distorted it were often the ones in power, and they enforced a sense of legalism that harmed many people, usually those who were poor and lacking agency. Over time, adherence to the letter of the law, even if it meant neglecting a holistic sense of justice, began to lead people to a way of practicing religion that was based on earning God's approval and love. We see this in other stories in the New Testament. I think of when Jesus was condemned for healing on the Sabbath. He was breaking the religious law of keeping the Sabbath, but fulfilling the broader spirit of the law that was designed to have those who were vulnerable cared for by their community. Ironically, in the centuries since Jesus' ministry on earth, Christians have often bought into this earning mentality so deeply that it still persists today. If We pray all the right prayers enough times, our loved one's cancer will go away. We read enough scripture, we won't have any doubts or fears. We keep asking God for help with our mental illness, we won't need medication. We live our lives rigidly preoccupied with acting perfectly all the time. God will be proud of us and love us and bless us with what we need and want. If we work really hard, God will love us perhaps just a little bit more than those who didn't work as hard. And conversely, if things are awful, if we can't seem to break bad habits, if the sickness isn't healed, if we relapse again, then God is not pleased with us. God loves us a little bit less than those who always do the right thing. I'm oversimplifying these ideas a bit, but if you stick around in any North American Christian community long enough you will encounter some kind of theology like that. Reliance on earning our blessings is so incredibly ingrained in our culture and society. It is the lie of how if we just work a little harder and hustle a little more, we'll be a millionaire just like the wealthy folks that we look up to. Which doesn't acknowledge privilege or inequity or injustice or how those circumstances are not things that you can just kind of mind-jetting your way around on the way to wealth and happiness. And let's say that those things still feel a little distant to you. You know that God doesn't choose to grant prayers like a fairy godmother, that God doesn't want you to pray a dozen of the same prayers every day just to get some life circumstance changed. Maybe you're not trying to become a millionaire and be endlessly happy. Maybe you're just trying to have enough to experience joy, to love others, To provide for yourself, maybe your family. Even if that's the case, this mindset is still under there, and it shows itself by way of discomfort. There's a pastor I know who often says God adores you. God adores you. Not what you do or don't do, not what you make or don't make, not how productive you are. God adores you. And I'm curious what emotions come up in you when you hear that phrase, God adores you. I think often there is a discomfort, and it comes into play into two ways. Either you are weighed down with so much shame and sorrow that the thought of God adoring you, delighting in you, is a completely strange and alien idea. Or you may be fairly confident that your hard work merits being acknowledged, that what you do is something that you can be proud of. But if you take away all that work and all that doing, then, then what? And if you were to take away all that shame, all that despair over how you just can't stop messing up, then what? God adores you then? God views you as worthy of love and sacrifice and provision and salvation then? God adores you just as you are just existing? Yes. Yes, God does. This parable is about a different way of living and working and relating to one another and to God that bases someone's worth on the fact that they exist, that they are human, that they were created by God, and not basing someone's worth on how or if they produce anything. I wonder how our world would be different if we in- interacted with each other by prioritizing justice and not necessarily fairness? How would it feel to ensure that everyone had enough instead of prorating provision? If you are struggling in the face of scarcity, what would it be like to rejoice when others are given enough even if they didn't earn it? And even more so, I wonder how your faith life would be different if you stopped endlessly striving for God's approval. What would it look like to be so grounded, so sure that the one who created all that is seen and unseen adores you? What would it look like to know that God looks at you right now and says, Well done, good and faithful servant? What would it be like to feel the full weight of God's grace knowing that you didn't and can't earn it? Do you see? Some things, God's grace, God's love, God's justice, cannot be earned. They are received, embodied, extended, but they're not earned. If the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who makes sure that all the laborers are provided for, if the kingdom of heaven provides reward and blessing not on the basis of productivity, but on the basis of what is right, the only way we can bring that fruition or that vision to fruition here and now is by being filled with the love of God. The love of a God who doesn't tolerate you, who doesn't just care about you, who doesn't just accept you, a God who adores you. It makes me think a little bit of what it felt like to be in middle school and like having a crush on someone or realizing that you are someone else's crush or the way that a child loves the adults in their lives, or the way a grandparent often delights in a grandchild or a grandchild delights in their grandparent. There is something about those kinds of loves, those ways of viewing others, that has nothing to do with how many emails they can send in a day, or how their sales are doing, or how clean the house is. There is love for another, for just being. When we are aware of that kind of love, when we remind ourselves of it over and over, remind each other of it over and over, we are able to grow into people who can give without conditions. We can grow into people who loosen their grip on their money and possessions. We can show others that we value them as humans first before assessing their ability to produce anything. We can grow past our envy of those who are generous into generous people ourselves. There's a verse in 1 John that says we love because he first loved us. This is the heart of it all. We are already beloved, and that reality is the only thing strong enough to empower us to love others. What a gift this is, this love, this adoration. May we cherish it. May we point others toward it. Amen.